My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed this show and want to support it, you can do so by writing a review on iTunes or simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Alexandre Hayes, and the topic will be a little bit more philosophical, perhaps, than usually, in the sense that we are going to look at some of the social implications of technologies such as Google Glass and drones. So without further ado, hi Alex, I'm very happy to have you on my show. And likewise, it's, it's, an, it's an honor. Thank you, Nicola. Fantastic. I should open up by, by saying that um, Alex is actually a friend of mine from Australia. He was one of the key people uh, behind the IEEE conference, Valence conference in Toronto, uh, which happened last year, a fantastic event that I attended and where we met. And mm -hmm. uh, does a lot of uh, Alex does a lot of very interesting and I believe very important research uh, for his PhD. So uh, let me ask you to take it on from there and perhaps uh, in a few words introduce yourself to our viewers. Sure, my name is Alexander Hayes. I live in Canberra, which is the Australian uh, capital city. Um, I'm a web developer and I work in the Australian National University. I've also uh, been recently appointed as a professional associate at the University of Canberra. Uh, my, I'm also studying through the University of Wollongong, which is uh, 400 kilometres uh, away from here. Um, looking at the, as as you were saying there, Nicola, the the implications of of wearable technology, but most particularly head-worn uh, camera-based network systems, particularly those that are locative. Uh, and my associations with IEEE have been predominantly around the engineering side of this technology. Um, and I'm connected in with you know, a lot of the Glass Explorer teams, but many other alternative uh, technologies. Uh, with a history of 10 years or so looking at point of view video t uh, technologies uh, in military and law enforcement, community policing, uh, emergency services, and uh, so AR or augmented reality is the next step forward from that head-worn video evidence-based capture. Mm -hmm. So also a bit of work there with, um, with covert surveillance uh, technologies. And as, you, as we connected Nicola there at Ryerson University around unmanned aerial systems or UAS, UAVs, more commonly known as drones. Fantastic. So we've got a lot of fascinating and, and interesting topics to discuss today. Let mm. me ask you with uh, your interest in uh, what you call wearable technology, perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. most recently, perhaps, or best epitomized by uh, Google Glass. How did you get interested in wearable technologies and why? Why is it important? Uh, it's, it's important. I think it's because it's the uh, the next extension of the way that we interact with uh, network technology and human computing in in, in general. Uh, I got involved from a perspective of understanding how people could operate equipment, how people could interact with uh, machinery, uh, and so on, with technology that captured from the first person perspective. Uh, that um, expert-based um, activity, uh, not only just the view, but where the person was, uh, what they were saying at the time, 
um, how they were interacting with other people at that time. And uh, that's how I got involved in, in the context of that through a point of view video based system. It became very apparent when I started the PhD that there were many considerations for how this would be used in a beneficial way. Uh, and I have seen firsthand over the last decade a substantial shift in the way that people now uh, contemplate uh, how that technology is changing in a workforce capacity, how it's affecting relationships within a workforce environment, and the implications that that has more widely now that, that uh, glass is, has become a social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So, so you you think, or or based on your research in the field, you believe that there are changes as a result of the introduction and and usage of those technologies. So substantially. So, mm. so, so before we dive into those, uh, let me let me just zero in perhaps first on on Google Glass, and then we'll see if we can expand the conversation from there onwards. But first of all, is Google Glass really a slam dunk? sort of a game-changing device, as some people would say that it is. Because just like any technology, there are skeptics who say that Google Glass is not ready for prime time and it's not going to make such a big difference. Mm, I've been reading, actually, listening to some of Robert Scoble's um, comments of late. Look, it's a technology that has not shifted humanity markedly in the way that it interacts with um, a a, a concept or context of wearable technology. What it is, is that it is, it is a, um, a substantial shift in the way that technology is being normalized. So the phenomena of wearable technology harks back as far as Steve Mann and the perceptual computing team can go back. Uh, even further than that, people have you know, readily worn a, a watch after understanding that the town clock told the time. So what has happened substantially, though, in the last couple of years, particularly, and what will happen markedly in, this, in the Asia-Pacific environment, is that this technology, uh, which is a wearable, um, connected, networked device that's an, part of an intelligentsia of, of uh, network learning, as I call it, um, is being normalized at a rapid rate, whereas in the past, technologies took decades if not centuries, to shift and change the way that things happened. So what's happened is that Steve Mann has been at this for 25 years or so, and we've seen a rapid shift in the last, as you've seen, since ISTAS 13. The uptake is incredible. The impact is discernibly um, uh, stronger than anything I've ever seen, and I really do think it is a game-changing device. I think it really is going to substantially shift the way that we interact socially. And, I'll give and you the one. reality is it, it, it actually has not been quite introduced just yet. So far, we've only had about, what, a couple of thousand of sort of better testers who, who have had access to that technology, but it's not really available, say, in Australia or for the white public. Well, the, the program has been extended out to, to open invitations now, which is, means it went from thousands to tens of thousands and quickly to hundreds of thousands. In, in um, I, uh, March, April of last year, I, I uh, travelled to Finland. It was minus 30 degrees, and I, <laughs> as, as part of my, Tamu um, Leonen uh, from Alto University in Helsinki is my co-supervisor for my, for my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I found it, um, the response to my um, 
predictions or, or uh, interest to be um, markedly and quite cutting. The Northern European notions of somebody even taking a photo in a public space, it needs to be with some form of acknowledged permission. Uh, in this case, these devices have the capability of doing so. So therefore, a wearer who is um, attached or, or connected with this particular device is seen to be um, in the point of, uh, at any point in time, taking images, which is an absolute no-no in some of those um, uh, Northern European cultures, as it is within the indigenous culture in Australia. There are strict rules around the way that people engage with each other in these environments and the permissions that are sought from the community around even locative data being made available to providers, never mind images and audio. Audio is the last bastion. If that is breached, uh, it breaches social accords, it changes the way that communities work, it shifts the way that people work with each other. Mm -hmm. Let me let me go back again and, and try and uh, ask you to explain one of the terms that you used, normalized. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that, that that technology is being normalized faster than any previous one? Um, technologies have a, um, a pervasive nature when they are um, out of the scope of um, uh, standard or uh, exposed use within a societal framework. So when we have technologies that um, are cutting edge or perhaps are pushing envelopes of comfortability, um, we understand that these technologies then uh, pose a threat or perhaps they pose a, a, a great deal of um, scope and, and promise for people. So that promise um, uh, is mediated by you know, society's interaction with that particular device. So people weigh that up. Now in terms of normalised, normalised or normalisation, is that a corporation or an organization sets out with an intent purpose to shift and shape communities' perception of a particular type of technology or device, and they shape that in a social accord to, uh, uh, to persuade people to step beyond their standard comfortability. So they're accelerating the way that people um, engage with a particular product or technology. Mm -hmm. So I, I coined normalization as being the, the activity of, of corporations that are um, beyond the considered uh, uh, social, I won't use the word um, normal there, social uh, understandings of a specific type of technology. It's an intentful purpose for activity. So in, in a way, you could say that the process of normalization is kind of like a different or a new way of marketing product without looking like it's marketing on the surface. It's, it's accelerating the acceptance and the, uh, the, the sort of the, the adaptation of that product in society without sort of that kind of explicit awareness that it's happening. I believe so. I've seen, I've seen a couple of examples of where um, the nature of activity, nature of um, technologies in a social context um, uh, markedly shift, uh, shifted the way that people perceive a particular technology. So one of those being, I think it might have been with you, Nicola, when we were standing um, in the alcoves or the, the foyer of uh, the Great Hall there at Toronto University. Yeah. And we had, we had Marvin, Marvin Minsky in, in front of us 
who was looking through the archway of a very ancient archway at a screen. And on that screen, we had Ray Kurzweil interacting with an audience through what would have been, at, for anyone, a considerable change in the way they, they interacted with a keynote speaker, that being through a web conference. But in that environment, in the actual audience, we had Thad Starner sitting there with Google Glass, providing the view back into the framework of those people within the Google um, control panel area, uh, which is a which is something that most people in the audience missed. They didn't see the screen between um, the audience, and they were intently engaged with the person on a screen without being aware there was somebody in their midst who was, in fact, semi-controlling the way that that um, that um, that presentation went ahead. So for me, it was paradoxical that we had layers, multiple layers of vision and visibility. And then we had another, a new and introduced visibility happening, or, or perhaps even, even deeper than that, Nicola, perhaps a transparency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so let me ask you then, uh, by the way, for our viewers and listeners, uh, I was very fortunate uh, to actually interview all of the people that you've mentioned uh, as a result of me attending that conference, mm. starting with uh, Dr. Marvin Minsky to Tats Turner. And later on, I actually also interviewed Robert Scoble. So for our audience, anyone who's interested, they can go and watch those, uh, those podcast episodes. But uh, going back to Google Glass, let me ask you, where or in what field are we to expect the biggest changes resulting from the normalization of Google Glass? I think that we're going to see a rapid shift in the way that people interact uh, in what or the breakdown of what is perceived to be public and private space. I think the greatest challenge will be for people to understand where private space and public space start and stop. Um, currently, when you lift your hand up with a camera, um, and take a photo. Uh, it's an intentful um, scene um, um, activity. If you are doing so with a covert camera, um, it's seen to be a breach of uh, a private space if in a um, private discussion you are covertly recording. What this technology does is places in the visibility within the eye line, within the actual affinity of eye-to-eye -eye contact, a identified corporate device which um, has for many people uh, two purposes. One purpose being that it's informing the wearer as part of a network, they become a networked or cyborg being. Uh, and the second is that that person is seen to be different in some way to others. And so what we are likely to see is that with, particularly with younger people, uh, people who are impressionable and have a pay packet, they don't have to pay for mortgages and children. Uh, they are going to rapidly engage in environment and and perhaps shift the way that they interact with people who are not wearers of this particular type of technology. Uh, so that's the most um, evident or visible shift that we are going to see, and we are I am observing it, seeing it happen uh, across the explorers team. But the most um, I think in a positive um, accord, we are going to see the interaction of, of people being hands-free, 
interacting in occupations where it will markedly shift the way that they have information to live networks, real lifetime information, and shift and shape the way that they actually go about their workforce occupation. And that's been of great interest to me, is how it will shift the educational and training environment for people and how it's going to shift the educational engagement with people that are wearing this device. And one of the people that I interacted with was uh, Dr. Christine Paraxlis at um, ISTAS 13. And I said to Christine, posed a question, Christine, if a student, for instance, came into your lecture theater, lecture environment, and engaged with you wearing uh, glass, they were wearing glass visibly within your audience, how would you interact? Would you have any problem with them? perhaps um, interacting with you in this, what is known as a public space. And she said, no, I'd be the first person to line up and actually try and get a, uh, a pair also to interact with that person, to engage with them. And I think what that signals for me is that educators, teachers and trainers are the first people to try and accommodate for difference, particularly around technology. They're one of the first people to actually say, there are people within this environment who are different. There are people in this environment who are informed. I need to be amongst that and understand that. So the questions in the Asia-Pacific environment where glass is not apparent, which only has access to certain developers who are designing apps for this particular device, there's going to be, um, I think there's a bit of a shockwave uh, going to happen across um, public and private spaces because of this device, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me take the issues here one by one and let's talk about the privacy part first. You said that mm -hmm. it would constitute basically the breakdown of private and public space. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, during my interview with Tats Turner, he said that that's a common misconception or misunderstanding for several reasons. So one of the things he said is that if I actually am recording something, you can see that my Google Glass is on because mm -hmm. there's a there's like an image that appears on the outside and it's designed specifically for that purpose so that it's not covert, but it becomes overt. Now it's true that people have to be educated and have to know what that means, but once they do, they would be able to see from a distance whether the user of Google Glasses is, is recording or not, whether their glass is on or off. Another thing that he said is that currently the video recording capabilities are very limited, spanning only a few seconds, I think. Um, and, and so on. So, so what, what would you say to that? Well, um, I was in attendance at the uh, privacy um, conference in Washington, and I had the opportunity of speaking with a number of individuals from Homeland Security who indicated that it's not the camera capability or the battery capacity. It's mainly around the fact that people are coalescing in certain groups in certain ways um, that um, that there is a vision in on who has uh, assembled in a certain environment, much like you could with a mobile phone, as it has a locator and a signal and repeater. However, this particular device has the capability of turning on at any given time, not just of the wearer, not just of the wearer's volition by this or by this with winking, but by the corporation itself. It can turn things on and off as it wishes. And the device itself, if you read carefully in the terms and conditions, uh, is a leased device. You don't own it. You actually lease this particular device. If you carefully read into terms and conditions of 
what breaches that wearer's conditions of wearing that device, um, you'll note things that are not made overt in the public sphere around that device. Now, in terms of the um, comments that Thad's made, is that's in this particular um, uh, version or beta condition of this particular device. This device is going to markedly shift in its capacity, mm -hmm. in its battery life, in its geolocative power, in its networked environment um, um, behaviors, all of that. It's, it's really the beginnings of the cycle. This is a very, very rudimentary start. Mm -hmm. So if we know that the technolog technological half-life of things is rapidly pacing, let's just say even if it is by 2018, in four years, that device is going to be capable of many, many other things other than simply taking a photo or lasting long enough to take a short video. Mm -hmm. And there are other perceptions I work with in the, in the political and defence studies uh, environment and closely with Indigenous Australians. And in a public environment, uh, the the uh, novelty of being able to take photos and images and so on it, it's cool you know it looks good and you get some good good results. However, in a confined space environment or within a a, a national security sensitive environment, particularly around uh, politicians and so on, these devices are seen to be an extension of the surveillance state. There is no other way for it to be described. They seem to be a collective window in on things at any given time. So if we can turn on 18 cameras at once from all different angles, we get a very different picture on what happens within any given event. It's not a singular view or perhaps two or three broadcast views. It's multiple views all happening at the same time. And an example of that is that I was recently had a coffee with a friend who's a networked architect who asked me only one question. He said, I only have one question about this particular technology. I can see why you're interested in it in a social way and also in a workforce capacity way. But Alex, um, what would have happened if perhaps in the crowd there had been 45 people at the Boston bombing wearing glass? Would it have made a difference? And I couldn't answer that one. All I know is that it certainly, it certainly, um, um, for many people, um, triggers a response that that is is a, a, is a a reflection of that idea of a surveillance state device. Mm -hmm. uh, before we move on to the sort of educational and uh, training uh, environments, mm -hmm. what? And uh, we, we talk about the breakdown of privacy here. What other sort of negative impacts can you mention here for the benefit of our audience that you have considered in your studies? Considered in terms of the physiological being of the individual. I don't know about you, but I do have definite dry spots in my left ear from holding a mobile phone against it for any given time, period of time. Going right back to the old brick phones, which had a fantastic CDMA signal. But we have to think about the actual physiolo physiological shifts in a human's brain when you have some form of device that it doesn't just work as a, a camera or um, similar. It, it's actually, it, it conducts off the bones for the ear. Um, it, it runs across the temple. So I'm sure that there'll be many, many disclaimers around the particular device having any effect on humans whatsoever. But it's like any device that we've ever seen in, in, in time that uh, we have to really consider that that is sitting next to a, a body mass of, of water and conductivity. 
and it has to shape and shift the way that people's um, physiological being is. And I think in the longer run, perhaps their spiritual sense of who they are too. If mm -hmm. you're, as I've discovered, many people that I've talked to from the glass environment community, they don't just wear the, the glass devices when they're in a public environment to look cool or look dorky and geeky. They wear the devices in their home. They wear the devices in um, in the everywhere, and they even wear them to bed. So if you're constantly got the thing on, um, I tend to keep my phone away from myself within ten meters or so at any given time. But it's away from my body. But if I've constantly got something on, um, I, I'm thinking of that. I don't necessarily see that as negative, but I'm seeing that. Uh, the interactivity between something that's always worn and perhaps things that are embedded in your body could interact in a, in a certain way. So they're things that, that the audience could consider as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. One that actually most people don't get to consider at all, actually, when they're buying those devices. I think mm. recently there were uh, a bunch of... Uh, uh, ratings that were issued for the different kinds of mobile phones that the the sort of uh, uh, how how was it called the the sort of interference or or impact radi radiation that they emit and they were rated with respect to that number, uh, mm. which is a very interesting uh, thing to look at, I think. Uh, mm. But let me so let me move on. You've mentioned two things. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention on the negative side of things? Not particularly, no. I think I think the key ones are privacy and physiological self, mm -hmm. which extends into the spiritual sense of who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's flip the coin then, and let let's look at the other side. Then, what what would be the benefits? You you already mentioned uh, potentially education and training. Would you say a little mm -hmm. bit more about that? Absolutely. So, an individual, perhaps, let's take a person who. Um, climbs long ladders and interacts with um, power poles and environments where they essentially have to be hands-free. They can't not be holding or connecting with something. Mm -hmm. um, in order for a, a novice to understand what those key things are that that individual does within their working environment, they either have to observe it from other points of view or they have to experience it in some way with some sense of not knowing. They have instructions, but they have to interpret those instructions and use those. Whereas when somebody is wearing a, a point of view video or other device, uh, they're getting the first person's perspective. They're also getting a sense of actually stepping into the shell of that individual and interacting with that. So in a training capacity, just think of any occupation that allow that has hands and is interacting in that environment. It's an amazing um, you know, step forward in being able to translate live expert types of training. The same goes with a bricklayer. It's very hard to lay bricks. If you don't know how to lay bricks, it's it seems very basic, but it's actually very quite tricky. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes. If you're able to see from the perspective of the person who is the bricklayer, it gives you a better sense of how to undertake the task. But then there's the medical side of things. There's interactions with uh, other equipment and other environments. There's ways that the device itself can geofence people. So if I go to a certain environment, it, it, it will come up on the screen and say, this is a forbidden area for you to enter. You don't have training yet to be able to interact in that environment. Mm -hmm. So they're the sorts of rudimentary or first state 
um, physiological ways that it could benefit. Then there are obviously for any workforce that has a policing accord, it's a brilliant device because that allows that individual to not only uh, see and eventually facially recognise people or recognise number plates on cars as an AMPR device or similar, it also has the capacity to shift and shape the, the behaviours of people in an environment. That person is seen to be wearing a device that's known perhaps to record data. So it shapes the behaviours of people socially within an environment. And we've seen that with the Tazar camera, um, Tazar Axon Flex and things like that. That's, um, that's, that's just a few examples, but there are literally thousands or tens of thousands of scenarios not yet scoped, um, Nicola, uh, that the audience themselves, if they're able to reflect on their own occupation and think about where they are in proximity to um, inf networked information, what they do with their hands in any given day, and, uh, and then how those two could marry to perhaps enhance or, or, or accelerate their performance, uh, then uh, the world's your limit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, just a or few examples that come to my mind now is, I was reading, and it's been a long time, maybe three or four years ago, that BMW had those uh, augmented reality or virtual reality goggles that uh, their mechanics can put on, and then basically you see which parts of the engine to swap and how on those goggles. Uh, um, mm. Other examples, of course, in military and police force, I remember uh, pictures, we, we of course didn't see the real footage, but pictures of President Obama and uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, watching the raid on Bin Laden's compound mm -hmm. via those uh, POV cam uh, webcams uh, from the sort of the, the Navy SEALs that were attacking the compound, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, then you have... Uh, uh, Astronauts like Canadian Chris Hatfield, uh, or people who done walks in space and repairs on the on certain on the space uh, station and, and other uh, installation in space, um, and even what comes to mind now is even like let's say playing the piano, right? I, I can't mm -hmm. play the piano, but I can imagine putting those goggles and they basically telling me press here, press here, press here, press here, kind of lighting certain kinds of buttons. And then I can mm -hmm. learn to play the piano much faster than I would probably otherwise learn to do it, right? And I think we need to make the distinction there too. I think that a lot of the AR industry uh, is 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 actually quite dissimilar to Steve Mann's concept of org-mediated self. Not augmented, but org-mediated. Meaning that the way that we interact and see is only partially obscured or only partially mediated. So therefore, uh, it's, it's that the most rapid form of uh, take-up is going to be from people who do not want um, to immerse themselves in something for something to tell them how to do something or, or instruct them. They want to be able to be informed and accelerated. So they want to still interact in their normal day, be able to see with their normal vision, with the same sort of transparencies around objects and so on, but they want to be proximate. It's bringing something very proximate to them quickly and rapidly that doesn't interfere, doesn't get in their way. It mm. keeps, keeps them uh, interacting both audibly and visually. So there is a difference there between augmented and augmediated. And I do think that much of what we see on the internet and what we see in reality 
is there is a huge spin around AR, lots of vaporware, lots of devices that don't hit the ground. They don't do as they say. Um, they do paint a magical picture of where we're heading, and most definitely they will be realised. But I think AR, in actual fact, is markedly back, uh, a step back from where augmented reality is, is charging forward very quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an important point. Uh, now, let me ask you the bottom line question, though. Mm. When you draw the line mm. in the end of the day, right, between all the mm. negatives and all the positives, do you think that technology such as Google Glass, let, let's speak first about Google Glass. Is Google Glass a good thing or a bad thing? Um, do no evil. So we need to live by our accord. Um, Corporations need to be socially responsible and they need to understand and make aware and definitely um, make open and transparent their research into the implications that these technologies have. Uh, they need, um, we need to be able to understand as a public the, um, the behaviors of the engineering teams and their considerations for privacy or not. And we need to better understand how these devices are being. Um, utilized in environments uh, um, to to improve humanity uh, not simply to control it so my answer is rather ambiguous but i do believe that we that we we as humans have the capacity for this technology to be absolutely astoundingly good but, uh, but, we also have the capacity and, to steer it let me try and press you here a little more because it seems to me that you're saying that they're not currently living up to their own motto. Uh, I think every every form of engineering uh, in history has had a um, a uh, an ability to sidestep um, its impact um, uh, questions and making that um, apparent within the research process. I think it's very apparent that. Uh, that this technology is being scoped uh, for a range of uh, commercial intent, which is fine and and so on. But we need that there needs to be more emphasis on how these organisations and this technology will will affect a community, how that organisation is going to cope with that and deal with that, and provide answers that will uh, ensure that the community's fears are realised. I think we're. Uh, at a point now where we have to hear more from Google around its um, uh, research in that environment and how it uh, honours and respects the rights of uh, particularly Indigenous communities who forbid this type of um, uh, activity happening within their environment. Um, it's not just a matter of uh, put up and shut up. It really is now a matter of uh, there being a, a strong and diverse research team that are that are publishing around implications on this technology. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another thing here. Then, what or are there any fundamental misperce misperceptions or confusion that you tend to often encounter about Google Glass and that you'd like to clear out? Uh, in, in the context of my own research. Uh, I am making, I have conducted a uh, hundred or so inter interviews in, under strict uh, uh, research ethics um, guidelines. But I also, as an individual and a human, are very interested in the people, the people's stories in a general context 
that um, I make openly um, available via a YouTube channel. So I interact live with people with no editing and make that uh, live as well. So the misconceptions or perceptions by people are going to become very apparent, I think, in the, 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 um, the comparison or the juxtaposition between my formal research work and my social engagement with people from these communities. Uh, and it's very important that uh, we understand that uh, the word community is being used to, engage, to, um, to uh, coalesce uh, fears, tribulations, um, uh, you know, all sorts of feelings around this particular type of technology. So we have both a formal response and we have an informal engagement. And I think out of those two, that titrate, Nicola, that's what we're going to see as the is the is the present reality uh are people's uh slips when they say look it really in actual fact um has isolated me in a certain respect that i hadn't had a point hadn't had a chance to actually consider until you'd asked me the question so i hope that as you are asking me hard questions that that, <laughs> that what i am doing is also asking hard questions of them for them to consider um, what it means to their loved ones, to their to their workforce employee uh, colleagues, and more importantly to themselves over time. I don't think many people are. I think it's a great um, um, marketing um, uh, opportunity, and it's it's certainly uh, not going to stop. It's going to accelerate. We're going to see this move from a hundred thousand to a hundred million very quickly. Mm -hmm. So. Let me ask you this: Where does DRM fit into the sort of Google Glass? It's a brilliant question because it's one that people are struggling a lot with around how to uh, how to attribute um, environments for this. But let me give you this paradoxical picture, which might be of interest to the audience. When I attended the, the privacy uh, conference there in Washington in June of this year. You know, in the in a TV studio, you get these massive cameras that have got like a chrome kick around and the huge handles and so on. I mean, they can they can zoom down on a zip. You know, they're massive. The 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 key sponsors of the privacy conference were was Facebook. So and it was <laughs> being <laughs> you know, just for that in its own right. But in the audience sitting there is Corey Doctorow. Uh, so. For any people, any learned person that understands the paradoxical moments that when you stand on the um, on the alfresco and talk about drones with um, with, a, with a homeland security individual, and yet when you look inside, you see Facebook sponsoring something where Cory Doctorow is willingly participating. You have to really wonder about where DRM has actually gone. It's perhaps in some regards has gone out the window, uh, and these devices are only going to uh, add to the uh, questioning around who owns what data in what respect. Um, if you know this, if this is a device that is triangulating information, then who is the true owner of the data and where does it rest? And I think it rests with the corporations that support its actual least condition. So we have to be um, um, mindful of um, interacting with people who are wearing glass. If it's needed to be. You have to do that. When eventually Google Glass comes to market and there are 
rumors or reports that it would be later on this year for maybe even something very affordable like a couple hundred dollars or so would you buy one yourself i don't think it's a matter of me buying one i've been wearing these devices since they began at the start of time i think it's more around the price point of affordability will never be a couple of hundred dollars if they did they would it would kill the actual product value of the, or perceived value of the technology itself there's going to be the, the point of, of this nicola is that there's going to be hundreds of suppliers of these types of devices it's not glass per se that's actually at the point here the point is that humans will be accepted wearing a particular digital prosthetic that adorns their 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 eye line the affinity line between them and others and that's what's going to shift humanity it's not the 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 brand name it's not particularly the nature of the technology um uh in its its positive refrain or negative it's around the shift in humanity as steve mann has has rightfully predicted um as soon as i have this particular technology in place i see my rights differently <laughs> i i feel i have the power to record what i want when and where at my own volition i am more in myself um a different being to that of other people i don't listen to what people perhaps say around a particular technology i am more more inclined to want to record things for my own rightful purpose so really the drm question and this idea of privacy is that it rests perhaps with the individual however if you're wearing a device that doesn't tap into your own network and goes into someone else's they own the data and, that, and that's the key question here that's the key point is that it's a shift in humanity it's not a shift in technology mm -hmm. very very good uh very interesting and important points there um let's talk a little bit about some of the alternatives because you said it's not about the particular brand or device give me a couple of examples of other products uh Vuzix m100 is probably um you know most widely known as an as a device that's very similar to glass in many ways um then we have uh you know space glasses by um where Steve's the chief scientist involved in the meta team and incredible incredible team that from Toronto University I mean it's amazing what's happened but there are many other um alternatives that are emerging um like glass up that are actually they're more of a prototype idea but what they do is they trigger us into considering hey this is not that hard to really think about here it's actually perhaps a transparent um screen it has this it has this in fact we've even had Nathan Myers from the glass explorer team construct his own um you know that very rudimentary but the actual concepts of what's going forward here are not too difficult to to uh put put away by the wayside so really nicola there are hundreds of examples of different types mm -hmm. of technologies that people can particularly if they go to valence.me to the main website of the organ of the actual uh conference which is being archived through ieee and and being made available perpetually um they'll have access to all of the key thinkers in this environment mm -hmm. um, not only technologists and engineers but people from 
social sciences, people from the arts, all sorts of people involved mm. in prototyping development and bringing things to market. Let me ask you this about uh, um, science fiction a little bit here. Uh, Werner Vinge wrote uh, a, a fantastic book called Rainbow's End, where mm. he goes at great length to sort of look at the implications of augmented reality technologies. And, and he wrote it probably, I don't know, almost, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, sort of anticipating Google Glass and all those technologies and looking through the implications. Have you read it by any chance? I haven't. I have heard of it, though, and you've mentioned it again, which triggers uh, a number of other uh, writers who have predicted rightfully that. It, the thing about this is we really have to, getting back to the normalization side of things here, um, Nicola, many of the engineers that, that, that push on this technology and, and test this technology hang out in the same bar with the science fiction writers. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. They're good mates. Science fiction writers are engineers' best friends, as are poets and artists, people who conceptually think outside of this, the, the, the um, normal um, uh, way of being. And, and therefore, it's no wonder that uh, our dreaming state, and that's how, how science fiction writers, they encapsulate our dreaming state. Engineers make real um, the ideas and concepts that science fiction writers talk about. And in that process, that translation, many of the impactful uh, feeling-based um, privacy and other topics are put by the wayside in order for this to work. Uh, and I've had it said many times, a number of people in interviews themselves have said, it's very apparent, Alex, that if we had to consider privacy amongst what we were doing in an engineering context, we would get nothing done. So... Uh, and that's not, I'm not talking just about, I'm talking about learning engineers, learning architects, learning designers, people in environments where it's really the last accord of, of, uh, of protecting people's rights. Uh, yeah, so there's, that's my take on science fiction writers and engineers. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And I, I recommend that book, by the way, to our audience. Mm. Uh, it's very much worth reading. It's called, again, Rain Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge. Mm. Uh, let me move on here quickly in the next few minutes that we have uh, left from our interview to ask you about your interest in drones. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so drones, uh, let, let me recount um, uh, a, without naming names or anything, but a point that, that I felt was very important. When I was at the privacy conference, I happened to interact with an individual who identified as being from, from, the, from Homeland Security America. The individual was acting in the capacity outside of their normal work duties and agreed to be interviewed. And uh, the conversation moved quickly to drones, and that individual indicated that they were fairly senior in the uh, the nature of using drones to uh, enforce uh, military um, intervention in certain parts of the world. My questions to that individual were more around how do these, what do you see as the interplay between the military space, that of domestic commercial, and also that of the hobbyist? And again, uh, which was the premise of the rice and uh, open conversation we had where you were present, Nicola, is that the regulatory frameworks around UAS 
uh, or drones or uh, UAVs in the Asia-Pacific environment is lacking a great deal of rigour. Uh, the Canadians have very quickly jumped the other way. They've made it very difficult for somebody in a commercial-based enterprise to deploy a, uh, a, a unmanned aerial system device to be able to go about doing business that is fantastic in terms of aerial photography, in terms of telemetry, in terms of you know geographical GIS work. Um, so my interest has really been around, believe it or not, the interplay between glass and drones. We are going to see many apps emerge where an individual's gaze, where an individual's interaction with an unmanned aerial system will be controlled by what they're wearing on their head. And it will start with a hobbyist environment. It will start with um, the domestic environment where you go down to the hardware, um, buy a, a accessible low-level entry drone and start to play with that and see the connection between a wearable head-worn technology and that device in the field. In the longer term, we can see that Skynet and the curtain of Skynet uh, is rapidly becoming um, no longer a Terminator picture, but a reality picture. Um, I happen to live in very close to the headquarter commands of most of the military operations in the Asia-Pacific, only seven kilometres from where I am here. It's very evident that those environments also um, control remotely uh, devices that fly thousands of kilometres away, or at least hundreds of kilometres away, uh, on patterns and operations. And so people in their everyday context, um, some of these, like the Phantom or the gimbal-based enha enhanced um, devices, you can deploy from your backyard they disappear quickly, they're on an automated flight pattern, and they become a surveillance device very quickly out in that environment. And that's what people are racing towards um, better equipping a regulatory framework to control how people use these in a domestic environment. In fact, the parallel workshop for this, Nicola, will be happening on February 17, uh, Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. So the parallel of what we talked about at uh, open conversation will happen in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, present will be every form of policing, including, including cyber crimes, uh, in the same room uh, to better understand how CASA, the regulatory framework, regulatory body here in Australia, are going to, to deal with this um, beyond phenomena. It's, it's an, an actual uh, threat in many ways to the way that people interact. And I'm very interested in how we get drones for schools happening here in Asia-Pacific. It happens across uh, Europe and across uh, the Americas, but I'm not seeing a great deal other than the Outback Challenge by sponsored by CSIRO and others. We need to have drones in schools with young learners. Uh, drones need to be an integral part of the curriculum. They need to be um, accessible to uh, engage young people around engineering and that um, this type of engineering and this type of uh, activity is really the next generation of, um, of useful um, technology for, uh, for, you know, for fitful and, and positive purpose. So just like Google Glass, you, you think that drones can be used for surveillance, but they can also be used for benefits, and, and especially in the, films, in the fields of education? Absolutely, absolutely. We've seen... 
multiple examples. Uh, I actually have an online G plus community called Drones for Good, and I just opened it and let it run, and it's got thousands of contributions of specifically purposefully positive uses of the technology for to thwart anti poach to for anti poaching for agriculture for many different types of activity where there is not a, a military or a um, an enforcement protocol. It's about enhancing or using the devices specifically engineered for a positive purpose. Mm. Mm -hmm. And again, the same question is with Google Glass. If we draw the line in the end of the day, is it good or bad? Again, it's around humanity's um, capacity uh, and uh, we have to inform that capacity again with open and transparent discussions that allow uh, the public to see how decision-making processes are instrumented, uh, to see which, um, which corporations specifically are controlling the conversations around that particular device and how to best um, uh, uh, for, for the, the lay public to be able to interact with that conversation in a meaningful way rather than being subject to it. So, yes, uh, do no evil. We need to live by our mantra for sure. Mm -hmm. Alex, uh, we've talked about uh, augmented reality for a while here and devices, but mm -hmm. what about augmented humanity? That is mm -hmm. what, what other people would call transhumanism. Is that kind of on the head, on the face, on the body wearable augmentation, just not an intermediary step uh, to the final point where is the augmentation would happen on the inside rather than on the outside. Entirely. Absolutely. I've been an author with my uh, supervisor since 2005 around the concept of ubervalence, as they would say, uh, Northern European which looks at the totality of valences coming together in a, uh, an inner surveillance state, meaning that an individual eventually, uh, yes, uh, we will be and have um, augmentations that uh, interact with uh, uh, external technologies and network technologies, and that the coming together of data, the coming together of surveillance, and the coming together of surveillance in totality make an uber-violent state. So uh, I believe that, yes, Nicola, um, humanity uh, is currently embedded with all sorts of technologies at the moment that are purposeful, uh, such as patented um, hip replacements or heart, heart um, uh, regulators or, you know, we already are. Um, I, think, I think we're actually, glass is just, or those sorts of technologies are simply a catch-up technology. We already have accelerated past um, the cyborg environment. We, we, we already are it. We are it now. Most of us carry around a device that constantly repeats and tells us where we are at what time and interacts with us, and we can talk to people on the other side of the world. Um, a lot of us don't have um, devices inside our bodies that tell a corporation our identity. But that is coming. It's very apparent that we are fast moving to a state where as a, as a young person, you will have the opportunity in the first instance to be um, uh, considered uh, for chipification if that 
accelerates your um, you know perceived uh, well-being, health, and wealth, then people will go that way quickly. They will do that. Mm -hmm. So we are heading there. Alex, unfortunately, we are approaching the end of our interview. So let me ask yeah. you, for those members of our uh, audience who want to find more about you and your work, what's the mm. best place? The best place is my Flickr feed. Um, it's an interaction with my world. Uh, it's a photo blogging environment. And as Steve Mann would say, a glogging environment. But really, the best place is to go to Google, put in Alexander Hayes, all one word, lowercase, and press go. That search engine seems to know more about me than I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we have the standard portfolio website, alexanderhost.com, ubervalence.com, uh, valence.me. There's, there's a myriad of things I've forgotten, you know, over the years. Google uh, doesn't forget. And <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Seemingly not. And, uh, and, and I must make mention here that you will see a website emerge uh, that I am responsible for, and that will be around returning Indigenous soldiers uh, or non-returning Indigenous soldiers who have served our country in Australia, who have not yet been honoured and been recognised officially and federally. And I think these environments are the most important environments for us to consider mm -hmm. um, our, our interactions. So I welcome contact from anyone regarding what I'm involved with. And I really truthfully, uh, sincerely appreciate your time, Nicola, in this opportunity to talk in this way. Let me ask you the last question that I always ask. What sure. do you want our viewers and listeners to take away from our almost one hour conversation today? What's the most important message that you want to send out? Uh, that, that, that as an individual, uh, and as a community that they're aware of the implications of their engagement with technologies that on the on the uh, on the front side are glossy and and uh, appealing and yet deeper thinking around and reflective thinking around a technology they will see a marked influence or shape on their everyday life so the impact the implications and the the uh, overall privacy accords that they need to consider uh, when they interact with this new or perceived to be new technological self. Beware the implications of your involvement with technology. Generally, yes. <laughs> Alex, Alexandre Hayes, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Nicola.